Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball, and today's guest has so many different talents that I could spend the whole show introducing him. He's a paleontologist, mammalogist, global warming activist, former Australia of the year, Australian of the Year, and of course, author. And I'll, I'll stop there if I'll make for a breath. Tim Flannery, welcome. Thank you very much, Magdalena. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, before we begin chatting, uh, I'd love you to just read a little bit from your new book here on Earth, just to give us a flavor of the, the text. Sure. Look, I'll read from the final chapter, which really tries to uh, summarize the sense of the book. As I completed my lap of Charles Darwin's sand walk, I looked back toward Downhouse and wondered what the great man would have made of our world, with its cars parked over the fields where cattle were once grazed, and his home turned into a scientific shrine. Would he have regretted the use of the term favoured races in the title of his book? I'd like to think that he understood that the survival of the fittest means the survival of none, and that he would have congratulated Alfred Russell on his extraordinary insights so far ahead of their time. Had I just a moment with the resurrected Darwin, I'd like to share with him the spectacle of heaven's performance as we now understand it. From the moment of Earth's creation through to the plains of Africa, where our species took shape, and onto this century. We'd watch this Earth, a sphere of stupendous complexity, transforming itself over an immensity of time, guided by the evolutionary process that he so brilliantly elucidated. So just make it a short reading, I think, Magdalena, and leave it at that point. But it's interesting that um, the, the book sort of pivots around Darwin, Darwin and, and almost moves on from him. Um, you know, you look at uh, Wallace and, and the alternative as well. And Darwin was something of a humanist as well as a scientist, much like yourself. Um, do you find that, um, you know, th- this notion of sub- survival of the fittest and its opposite of um, sort of, allowing ourselves to maybe give up power and share towards a common purpose and, and common evolution to be almost the pivot on which the book turns. It is, in a sense, and it does. the book does take up, in a sense, where Darwin leaves off. Uh, Darwin was an extraordinary man. He, he was the first um, of us, really, to see and understand clearly the mechanism that created us and created our world, that mechanism of evolution by natural selection. And he spent his whole life studying it. But he really didn't see that, that even though that is an amoral and brutal and horrible process that works using death, really, um, that what it creates is this incredibly collaborative world, this extraordinary um, world of synergies and collaborations and win-wins that Alfred Russell Wallace, the co-founder of the theory of evolution, went on to describe. And that, that really is the point of the book. You know, if, if we believe we live in a, a dog-eat-dog world, a survival of the fittest world, then, you know, we live in a civilization of ideas and we will end up creating a civilization that reflects those values. And a civilization like that is bound to fail. It simply cannot uh, survive sustainably on planet Earth. Yes, it's... Um Again, another key notion in the book is this notion that we're all part of a single organism, that, um, you know, the human superorganism, the system. And it seems to me that getting this, understanding this oneness, is really part of the solution, part of the 
what will make the difference between, you know, evolution to the next level or the road. Yeah, that, that's right. Um, we, we do have to understand that we are part of Earth. And, you know, in trying to explain that to people, I, I go back to the origin of life itself, which is still really science's greatest mystery. But, uh, but you know, there is no doubt, um, even having said that it's a mystery, there is no doubt that, that the, the, the electrochemical reactions that make up life, including ourselves, are rooted firmly in Earth's crust. So in a sense, we're animated parts of Earth's crust. You can see us you know, as that, as, along with all, all other life. Now, we're profoundly important bits of Earth's crust and profoundly powerful bits. But ultimately, that, that's what we are. And we work together in synergy with all the other living organisms on the planet. We are inseparable from them. Our own bodies, for example, about 10% of us by, by weight is other organisms. Bacteria that live in our gut, for example, or mites that live in our follicles. There's a huge variety of them. We are ourselves a, a sort of a minor ecosystem. So we are inseparable. We're part of life. Our fate is inextricably intertwined with that of the planet. And we have to start living sustainably. And that, that's the bottom line, really, for the book. That's the bottom line message. So, you know, as we move forward, we have to develop ideas and understandings that help us live sustainably on planet Earth. And, and I suppose, you know, everything you say and everything in the book is undermined by, you know, good science, scientific principles. But you find that, you know, you're actually, you're taking on, I guess, a perspective that often has been taken on by, you know, non-scientific, maybe new age sort of people. And therefore, you've had to struggle a little bit with the scientific community accepting these ideas. Yes, I think, I think that's true to some extent. Um, what I... Uh, uh, find as well, though, is that really the, the, the community as a whole has a rather unusual or strange idea of what science consists of. Um, and, you know, when, they, when people think of evolution, for example, very few have a clear understanding of it. And, and even those that do often think, oh, it's a survival of the fittest type mechanism. And, of course, those words weren't even Darwin's words. They were the words of Herbert Spencer, survival of the fittest who took Darwin's ideas and tried to apply them to society. So there's a lot of misunderstanding and misapprehension around evolution and our nature, even from a scientific perspective. Mm. And I suppose it, it, it does feel almost simultaneously counterintuitive and yet right, which is a, a strange sort of thing. I mean, yes, it makes perfect sense when you look around you, and as you say, you know, a number of all the components up are, are also distinct. And, you know, you talk about ant colonies and, and various other animal worlds where that, you know, that is clearly evident. And yet somehow we still feel like individuals and therefore it's very difficult to move beyond that sort of intuitive sense that, you know, we're separate. Well, that's, that's true. And we are individuals. The level of us as an individual is an incredibly important one. It's just that that coexists with a whole lot of other levels. Really important as well. Yeah. So our relationships with others, for example, are something that we really know about. And you know, when you start drilling down as to what we as individuals are, the answers again become rather nebulous and rather fuzzy around the edges. But I was fascinated while I was researching this book to read about the way brains are constructed. I mean, they, you know, there is no brain commander. There is no single central commanding entity for the brain. We've got two hemispheres that are linked. And then a sort of a mammalian brain that's the seat of our emotions, and then a reptilian brain that, that runs just the fundamental aspects of our body. And, and we know as individuals they can often be in conflict. You know, we can uh, 
become scared, for example, and the, the mammalian brain, the seat of the emotions, will override the hemisphere, the rational brain. You know, as we react. So we know this. We know that we're not a, a single entity, and yet we continue to um, at least pretend to, uh, that we are. And I think if we take that broader view of what we are in the context of the earth and our society and our civilization and our families, we get a much better understanding of 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 um, how we fit in with things and what the real importance of life and us is. Yes, and and another element of that, and uh, you take on Dawkins a fair bit as well. Um, you know, is this notion of passing down our our DNA, selfish gene, the memes, etc. You know, that, this idea that there is part of us that also you know, goes somewhere else and continues outside of our bodies. Well, well, that's right. And look, genes are important. There's no doubt about it. And 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 uh, Dawkins's work on the selfish gene represented a real scientific breakthrough, a major um, advance in understanding, really, of of uh, Darwin's message and genetic inheritance. But it's far from a complete um, description of us as beings. And I just, you know, I, in the book, I use that example of. Uh, Dawkins describing maternal love and the love of a child for its mother. And he describes it in, in evolutionary terms and says that, well, a, ch a child's smile, in a way it's a weapon. It's an attempt to get more than its own fair share of resources out of the mother. And at an evolutionary level, that may be true, but there is something so profoundly wrong with it that it really illustrates the point that genes are just the beginning for us. The, that, that we, as complex evolved organisms, um, have built on that genetic inheritance a hugely complex social and emotional being that is us. And that is very important. And, and that being is, in fact, now far more important than the genes. And, and that um, almost and the idea. Yes, the, the meaning, the idea that also is shared and, and you know, creates a kind of power. That's right. I mean, in, in, similar, in simpler life forms, such as ants and bees and termites and so forth, that form these superorganisms that form these great colonies of interacting individuals. Uh, there, the genes are what drives those interactions and, and gives the economy its shape. Among humans, that's just not true. We don't share enough genetic similarity, really, to uh, have a genetic basis for our civilization beyond sharing a similar sort of understanding. For us, it's ideas. It's ideas that build our civilization and, um, and um, give them the shape that they take. And those ideas, of course, are formulated by us as living, complex beings. And those ideas can work against the interests of our genes. We've seen transition. People decide that they want to have much smaller families. And that brings benefits to them as individuals because they uh, have more resources available to them, gives them a more comfortable life. It allows them to look after their children better. But it's not what our genes want. Our genes would much prefer that we had as many offspring as possible. Uh, that's their sole goal is to, to proliferate into the next generation. So that is just one example of where ideas uh, triumph over genes. Mm. Now, one of the key aspects of the problems um, that we, as humans, are struggling with come down to mining, drilling, and burning. And you, you talk about these things. Um, they also underpin, of course, uh, underpin our economy, especially here in Australia. Do you, do you feel that we need to bring back those things, mine less, drill less, burn less, or do we need to think differently and look at beneficial methods? Are there better methods like pyrolysis, etc.? 
you know, well, it, it's interesting, you know, if you, you look at human um, attitudes towards mining and drilling and so forth in the past, um, they're very greatly, and just as one example, the ancient Romans, as Pliny the Elder tells us, totally forbade mining on the Italian peninsula on the basis that it was an insult to Gaia and it was a dangerous thing to do. So, in some ways, I think we have to, we have to limit our activities uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that's guided by science, but in a way that is consistent with common sense and the interests of the planet as a whole. We can't keep digging coal up and burning it at the rate we are. We know that from the impact that it has on the atmosphere. So, you know, that is just a common sense approach. And sure, that the decision to do that will fall more heavily on some peoples than others. So Australia, for example, with its coal exports, is likely to be harmed by that uh, more than other nations. But it is very necessary that it happens if we and our mm-hmm. interests survive into the future. So, and we will find other, other, other forms uh, for our economy. We'll find other resources, other benefits. Um, you know, the Australia I grew up in uh, rode on the sheep's back. It was dependent upon wool exports. We're now dependent upon...